Professor Arla Tabor spent nearly two decades working in primary industries with the Queensland Government before making the move into academia at the University of Queensland in 2010. Arla specialises in cattle tick, paralysis ticks and the diseases they cause and reproductive diseases in cattle. But when she started at university, Arla didn't even know parasitology was an option. In this conversation, Ulla talks about carving out your own research niche, the importance of building your network of mentors and sponsors, making the transition from government to academia, and the secrets to grant applications, having received more than $12 million in grants for her own research over the past decade. Hi, Ulla. Thank you for being here and talking to us today. Thanks. Good to see you. Where did science begin for you? Probably high school, but now that I think about it, I had worked out by the time I was eight what the edible plants in the garden were. I don't think I was actually sitting there in primary school thinking about science. Uh, It was high school more. I really got to enjoy biology and chemistry. I was the only one in the room in an all-girls high school telling everyone I want to be a scientist and they were just like shaking their heads. Why? But going into uni to a science degree, there were so many courses. Like we didn't, I didn't know what biochemistry was. And so I did a lot of biochemistry as well as microbiology uh, through the degree. And actually, I had an academic advisor because I don't know if they do that anymore. We all had to, ha- we were all assigned an academic advisor when we did our science degrees last century. And they would advise us on what courses to take. And he actually advised me to major in microbiology, biochemistry and physiology I think I got through second year for all those three, but third year, there was no way you could do all those majors in a degree without staying another two years. Mm, mm. But the biochemistry was probably where the molecular biology fascination started. And what about about the draw to microbiology? What drew you? Because a lot of people, again, start university and not really thinking about microbes. I mean, I did, but... At the time, the microbiology department had all these different specialists they just had a lot of courses. I don't know if they still exist. Like you could do an arm in industrial microbiology, medical microbiology, plant virology, animal virology. They were all courses like that. So I gravitated to virology in the beginning and also the medical microbiology. Why? I don't know. At the time, which is really quite funny, I did, we didn't know that parasitology existed at the university. What? Yeah, we didn't know it was there. Otherwise, I would have done some parasitology courses. To end up doing parasitology research is just yeah. bizarre. We didn't know it existed. So you got to remember we didn't have email or internet and stuff like that. So you had a book where you had to look up courses, right? So at the time, I remember microbiology and biochemistry were quite well linked. Mm, mm. But the parasitology wasn't. And I wished I'd known about it, I suppose. would have been handy. <laughs> you then spent a year working in the sugarcane industry. Can you tell me a little bit about that? What were you doing with sugarcane? I decided after that year that I hated working with plants, but what it was, it was an interesting project. Sugarcane attracts these mealybugs, which have these bacteria in them that have a lectin somehow associated with this bacteria that ends up precipitating sugar in things like Coca-Cola. So I had to develop a test to detect that bacteria which was really bizarre. So it was a microbiological sort of project, but then I just didn't enjoy this crushing sugar cane and crushing mealybugs. I just thought, I don't don't want to do this. Did you at least get to take home some sugar cane juice? No. And it was a confidential project. There was no publishing or anything. So what led you then to a PhD? 
I started working here at UQ with Dr. Trish Demichelio. That was the job that got me out of sugar. (laughs) (laughs) And it was medical microbiology. That was great, you know. And I think I was working with her for about a year as a research assistant. And I was mainly genotyping, which is what we used to do at the time in the day, ribotyping bacteria from outbreaks. I said, I'd like to do a master's. And she said, no. She said, do a PhD. If you hate it, you can downgrade to a master's. Because I was doing it part-time and I was sitting there going, oh, you know, it felt like a death sentence to do a PhD part-time for six or seven or eight years or whatever. But I did it in five part-time. <laughs> I think I knew what I wanted to do at this point. That was yeah. easier than a graduate that's gone straight through honours PhD. can take a bit longer. So how did you manage doing a PhD part-time? Because I think a lot of people don't consider that as an option. Did you find it hard juggling work and study? No. And and that's really hard for me as a supervisor right now sometimes because I found it very doable, obviously. I did work longer nights and weekends to get the work done because I actually had a job during the day, started a different job somewhere else in the middle of the PhD so I literally had to deliver during the day on that job. I couldn't do things simultaneously. I think I was just driven to finish it and publish along the way, which is what we're all taught to do. But I have difficulty relating to students who are struggling to get something done in four or five years sometimes. Mm. You try and support the students best you can. Mm. Uh, but I do find some of them are struggling probably because of their lack of experience when they come into a PhD. I think that's mm. probably the problem mostly. So would you recommend to your students that it's good to have some sort of industry experience or job prior to commencing a PhD? Or In coffee, we get a lot of students from overseas and a lot of them have done sort of maybe a semester of research or just enough to get in and I think maybe that's not enough for a lot of them. Mm. And a lot of them are doing techniques that they've never done before so they're learning something completely new. And if they're happy to take longer, it's fine, but then people run out of scholarship, run out of money, run out of time. So I think... It's just carefully selecting students. I think every generation has its own challenges. Like I think back in the day, the challenges were more technical mm. because there just wasn't techniques developed. You couldn't you couldn't use a kit for everything. No, exactly. Yeah. And now it's, I mean, at least what I'm finding is that to publish, it's years and years and years and years of work and years and years into supplementary figures and just the standard is very different. Yeah. I agree with that and the techniques applied. Yeah. yeah. But that's another important thing, though, um, I've noted in my career. There's a lot of molecular biology in it. I, I now in my lectures explain how sequencing has evolved mm. and an example of a different paper where I've done used that sequencing method up till now. So that's pretty amazing what's happened with sequencing. So you were juggling a PhD with a full-time job, publishing along the way just, you know, as you do, and then something significant happened to you uh, when you handed in your PhD. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was pregnant. <laughs> so so juggling a PhD, having a job, starting a family, you know, all in your stride. How did you find that and how did you, how did you juggle that? I think I learned early on that being a scientist is something that you live and breathe. It's not something you do from nine to five and put away and go home and don't think about it. Mm. And I don't endorse telling people to do long hours but do the hours that suit you Mm. like Mm. for me I would get the kids home at a certain time from daycare I wouldn't leave them there till six o'clock at night 
and then get them fed and watered and bathed and all the rest of it and into bed. And then like by 7.30, 8 o'clock, I might be something I might do for an hour or something like that. So you don't take your time away from your family, but you just manage your time, whatever suits you. Like mm. some people might be early birds. I never was. So, you know, they might get up early in the morning and do a few things. Um, but that work-life balance isn't an eight to four or nine to five. I really, well, if it is, then lucky you. But it doesn't mean that I was working from nine till five and then working again from eight till 10. It wasn't like that at all. It was mm. just what I needed to do. And there's always the inevitable deadlines that just are, you know, you deal with. And then you take some time out on other days, you know. And I think that's the really incredible thing about science, that you do get a lot of flexibility in yeah. your job. Yeah. Like if you have to finish early one day, you can finish early and then work longer the next day or make it up somewhere, which I think is pretty unique. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's been uh, – so I actually think being a scientist and having children is probably better than some other service job where you actually can't leave. Mm. Mm. You handed in your PhD. You had a child. What was the next step? So at that point I was in primary industries, Queensland primary industries, which was probably a good place to work while I was raising kids. But I don't know if I would have done much differently if I was at UQ by then. I didn't want to stay with the government forever. So I was looking to get to university. That's where I wanted to be. And that didn't happen until 2010. But that experience in the government for whatever it was, 18 years, sort of gave me a niche research space if that makes sense. Mm. I, I never would have thought I'd end up working with animal diseases and vaccines and diagnostics for animals in particular specifically, but the spaces that I started working in, nobody at UQ was working on, so it was good. Talk to me a little bit about that transition from working in primary industries to UQ. How did you find the transition from industry to university? How do you navigate that? When I was in industry, I didn't give up my science and I, I don't know how to put that. I used to get students, as many as I could. I had contacts here that I would get students through. I'd give work experience to students that couldn't find jobs, say, after their degrees. Obviously, I wasn't doing any teaching. I did do some lectures here and there. I also had to get grants. So I had to get grants and I had students. Not as many as I would have that I was working at UQ when it comes to students. And when I wrote my scientific papers, I made sure there was enough scientific rigour because you could just write something very simple. For instance, in that job, you didn't have to publish. It wasn't a metric. Mm. But I kept doing what I could to keep that academic brain going because you can give that all up and just be a scientist in the government, nine to five, do the job. Mm. If that makes sense, you can exist quite well. Mm. But just had to keep that academic brain, thinking like an academic brain. So it sounds like students were quite a passion for you. Is that what drew you to university? Well, they created Coffee, the institute that I'm in, out of staff from DPI initially. We had to apply. Mm. There were 38 of us initially that got moved across because there was a limit to how we could progress in a government. I was already at the highest level of whatever I was doing, which would be an equivalent to a level C here. Mm. Mm. So to move ahead, to move up towards professor, could only be in the university system. Mm. And you mentioned that you still had to get grants in your position. Can you tell me a little bit about your first ever grant? How did you go about doing it? What advice would you offer for people who are starting that stage of their career? I had this amazing mentor, this man. He passed away now two years ago. He taught me how to lobby with Meat and Livestock Australia. 
And ever since he taught me that, which was like 2002, I've had Meat and Livestock Australia funding since 2003. So what's the secret? How do I lobby? <laughs> so they have these committees, regional committees. And if you're working on a disease that is in a particular region, it might be all over Australia, it doesn't really matter. You can write a one pager and submit it to their meeting. You have to just find the committee, find the secretary and send it to them. And then they will tell MLA that this should be funded. Like they advise Meat and Livestock Australia. So I think the first project that I got up, the manager at MLA just said to me, every single committee wrote to us and told us we had to fund your work, so we had no choice. Great. (laughs) But they're a bit different now. They have funding rounds Mm. with specific themes, so you have to meet their themes. But writing grants for Meat and Livestock Australia is quite different to ARC. Having said that, though, the reporting is a lot more involved than an ARC project. Mm. And you're contracted to dates of obtaining funding based on milestone reports, which are eminently due Mm. all the time, it feels. So that's harder Mm. to navigate. Um, And there's less freedom to change your mind. If you change your mind, you need to vary the contract. It's very much the milestones you came up with and the ones you have to stick with. Mm. How important do you think mentors and and that guidance is throughout your career mentors cannot be it can't be someone assigned to you I know there's all these mentoring programs and I take part in them as a mentor and you get assigned people right but I mean it's a temporary relationship and I'm sure there's some benefit in it but for your life career you really need someone that you've technically chosen or Mm. they've chosen you and you get on really well and you have your brain in common and whatever it might be. You may not even have the same career, but they're just able to understand you and where you want to go or they have ideas of where they think you should go because that's also helpful. Sometimes early on you don't really know where you want to go, mm. right? So I think it's mentorship's really important. And how important do you think this distinction is these days where people talk about a sponsor and a mentor? Yeah, sponsoring is really important. Sponsoring is when someone senior to you or even a peer will mention your name and your work. So you might recall I've tried to mention a few people like the technician in the lab because he did all the work. Mm. It's clear that I didn't do everything. Of course not. No No one one ever does. So that's sponsoring, you know, sponsoring that student or staff member or other person mentioning what they did and what they're good at. That's really helpful. As a senior leader, I think you need to have a list of names of people you're going to sponsor and tick them off. Mm. Make sure you're getting through a list of people. Because mm. often I often hear, and I know I don't want to name any names, where people mention the same people all the time as achieving. And that's not really fair because, you know, a lot of people are achieving. Mm. I think sponsoring something, you've got to make sure you keep a list and tick people's names off and recognize the whole team. Yeah, 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 it's important. We mentioned about moving to Coffee and the transition from government. You mentioned some of the similarities in that you were already supervising students, getting grants. What were some of the major differences? Obviously, the academic freedom. One example, which I hated when I was working in the government, was when fire ants were discovered here in Queensland. I didn't really care about fire ants, but we had an honours student start that week and they sent me off a fire ant chasing because everybody just gets deployed to whatever government emergency there is. Mm. And I was so angry because then I had this student in the lab all by himself, never done anything. It was just a nightmare. He didn't know what he was doing, but he had to go. But it was just those sort of issues about, well, it's not an issue. It's part of the job if you work in the government where they have to address an emergency, be it Yoni's disease or whatever has been happening recently and Japanese encephalitis, I think. 
everything goes to those resources or people get deployed to do other jobs. Mm. Obviously, we don't. that doesn't happen at UQ. I also feel that my time is more managed by me compared to when you're in the government. So I can plan my time. And And so talk to me a little bit about the research that you're doing now. What are you working on? What are you really excited about? What do you see as as the next big thing in your field? Well, I really like vaccines and I know you do too. Yes, (laughs) vaccines are amazing. (laughs) Our cattle tick vaccine recently had some really good results. We had 90% efficacy after a second infestation of cattle, which was great. So I'm trying to find ways to spread this around the world. So talk to me about cattle tick. What is oh, what is I that? I know. It's, you can don't need a microscope to look at it. About 80% of the world's cattle populations are in regions where there are ticks, cattle ticks and the diseases they carry. The tick itself is, doesn't, isn't fatal, but it's Babesia bovis mostly that can cause a fatal infection like malaria. I originally was working on Babesia bovis at one point. And once I turned my interest to working on ticks, that's when all the funding started coming in. The tick vaccine was high priority. It took us a long time. We started 2005 and we got these results just under two years ago. So a long time. And it, it is interesting field. So just break it down. So in a very simplistic way, how does your vaccine work? Mm. What do the results look like and okay. what does this mean? So our final two antigens that we worked out seem to be the best. And they're not known for being vaccines and anything else. They're very random, discovered through this long process that we did. We did two shots for a month apart and then we challenged with larvae, which they can't, you can't really see larvae. So they <laughs> um, and then three weeks later is when they're adults and then we collect the adults Literally in moats, they collected from each animal, counted, weighed, incubated to see if they lay eggs, see if they form larvae. And then once we've got that data, we work out an efficacy. And after a second infestation of our vaccinated animals, the adult ticks were black and they didn't lay eggs. So they'd like hadn't digested the blood, but we worked out why they were black. Amazing. And they died. So that was the phenotype. So if you can imagine a farmer with cattle, and there's normal ticks on his cattle and you can see them and falling off if they're black and not laying eggs. After a few generations, there would be less ticks, which is what they want a visual. So you've got a great vaccine. Mm. Where is that being deployed? What's the uptake like? How do you go about translating that research into real-world applications? Really hard. We only had a group of six animals that were vaccinated, so people are saying you haven't vaccinated enough. So the project's finished. I'm trying to develop something where we do 30 as the magic number someone decided and just to show a higher efficacy. I'm also writing to people that I know in other countries to see where they want to collaborate, say like through ACR to test it in some countries in Africa because they have other tick species as well that affect cattle, not just the one that we have here. So you think there might be cross-protection? Well, that's what I want to test. can't test that here, so test it somewhere else. That's what I'm trying to do. The other thing I found out very interestingly is animal health companies use a lot of drugs to control ticks and they make a lot of money out of these drugs because they have to be administered once every two months or so. Mm. It's more money for them using drugs than it is to make a vaccine. So I have to prove a few more things. Producers want vaccines Mm. that don't like using the drugs because there's withholding periods for products before they can go into the food chain, depending which one they used. And the ticks develop resistance to these drugs. So they want it, but it's like a commercial economic uh, line, which I found quite interesting. 
Mm, so you've really got to think about it from all angles, not just the science works, mm. but, you know, this has health benefits, economic benefits, multifaceted yeah, benefits, yeah, I guess. Yeah. And I never thought about the economics like this. I thought if you had a vaccine, you'd just roll it out. Simple as that. But no. You've mentioned what you're hoping to achieve with this vaccine, but I know that you've got patents in your career. I'm somebody who doesn't do anything that could be patented. So I'm very curious about this process. How do you go about doing that? How hard is it? What does that mean for publications? Yeah, the Catalytic vaccine paper is in a draft form since 2010. The final trial's not in those patents, but I think I'm just going to have to put it out there. The antigens are protected by these patents, so I can just put, I need to put that out there. That's one of my goals this year. That'll be a really good achievement. I think I'm going to invite the 30-odd people over the years that have been involved with the research and have a really big tick party. But anyway, (laughs) so normally once the patent has gone online, that mightn't even be actually awarded, but at one point it goes online live. People, Anyone can see it. So you can just Google it? Yeah, yeah. Then you you more or less publish. And we have published a paralysis tick vaccine. That's the one that your dogs and cats get in Australia. My dog appreciates it. Thank you. Yeah. And there's a small company rolling that out. The difficulty with that project was it's limited to Australia. So no big farmer was going to take it up. You might know if a dog gets paralyzed, they get an antiserum. So there's one antiserum place left in Australia and they're going to roll out this vaccine. It was easier because all we had to do was make a cocktail toxin vaccine, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Unlike Cattletick, where we had no idea what we were looking for for vaccine candidates. On the idea of patents, is that something that your students are involved in? No, they're not. In actual fact, once something gets to that stage, and once a project gets to a stage where you have to make recombinants, I've used, for instance, protein expression facility. You've got to get to a point where something is done properly, quickly and well. Yeah, and on an of a certain grade. Yeah, and you don't want students exploring. Mm. You can't do that exploration anymore. I did have one student look at the transcriptome of those black ticks as an example, as a side thing. Mm. But I wouldn't have got them to run the trial or anything like that because... I've noticed that there are things when their ticks are being collected and stored and stuff that a lot of people didn't notice. Mm. Like I'd noticed that they looked different or stuff like mm. that. And you need those observations at that point. In terms of your scientific achievements throughout your career, what have you been most proud of? Is it this vaccine or is it some more fundamental work? Obviously, this vaccine's exciting. I think by staying in molecular biology, because that's what I really like. It's not that I love ticks certain species of bacteria or whatever. It's the molecular biology side, sequencing. If I can weave sequencing into any project, (laughs) then I do. So tell me for the layperson, what is sequencing? Why is it important and why is it so exciting? A lot of us started, say, sequencing DNA, which is the basis of all of our genes and why we exist. But these days we're sequencing RNA as well, which is what the DNA produces to make a particular product in your body, say, because you're going to have DNA not producing any RNA or making, depending what cell of your body is. Obviously, you're in your eyes, the cells are not making skin, are they? And you're not growing teeth in other places. <laughs> so that's where RNA comes in. So we've got four bases that we look at in DNA, A, G, C, and T. And when we sequence, we have to differentiate the positions of these A, G's, T's and C's in a sequence. It's basically looking at the order 
yeah. in which these four yeah. letters are And positioned. the order which they are in translates to the RNA and to the actual protein or product that it's making. So those four letters, that order of those four letters will determine how your skin grows. It will determine how your organs develop. It literally underscores every single physiological process. If we're looking at a parasite, for example, it'll tell us how that parasite might grow because you can sequence parasites just as easily as you can sequence humans. What I fundamentally love about sequencing is that you really have four letters that determine everything. Everything. They determine everything in humans, but also in parasites, also in viruses. So I guess what I love about sequencing is that it really translates across all disciplines. In terms of non-scientific achievements in your career, what have you been most proud of to date? Has it been the mentorship to students? Has it been the engagement with the industry? Probably personally, uh, my daughter's just qualified as a medical physicist. She used to enter data into spreadsheets at night when she was like nine for me. And she still did science, but in a more direct way. So I mean, yeah. medical physics means she'll be calibrating the machines that people use for their radiation treatment, essentially. So it's pretty cool. So if you could look back and look back to your younger self when you were the only student in science in high school or juggling your job with your PhD, what advice would you offer yourself? My younger self? Yeah, your younger self. Just be yourself. I think I had to learn that lesson. I think I was trying to fit in. My parents are migrants, right? So you never really fit in because your background's so different. But I think just being myself was probably the best advice. I think when people start early in their careers and in their jobs, they feel like they need to fit in. Well, I don't know if they do. I'm just, I feel that that's what people try no, to there's, do. There's certainly a, a system and a structure and you feel like you have to be in that system and mm. structure. You don't. Just be true to yourself, I think, because I think once I was doing that, grants in multiplied everything, just got better. And I think your own authentic self is easier to be than something else that you're not. I think that's a brilliant, a brilliant message. Be your own authentic self. Mm. And I think that's a great message to, to leave this on. So thank you very much for your time. Thanks. You've been listening to Women in Science. Your donation can help us tell more stories like this one. You can find the donation link in the episode notes. Production for this episode was by Dr. Marina Fortes, Dr. Marlus Decker, and Dr. Kirsty Short. Senior technical production was by Dan Seed. Make sure you subscribe to Women in Science. Thanks for listening. <laughs>